Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the jazz session. I'm Jason Crane. The jazz session <laughs> sounded like I was a little bit surprised by that. Who is this idiot? I often ask myself. Uh, the jazz session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, who'd probably like to distance themselves from that fact at this moment. The web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of this show is available online. Can you guess where? I bet you can. It's at thejazzsession.com. You can download them. You can stream them. You can have them represented on your screen as ones and zeros if you're really good at binary coding. And you can also find the recent episodes, at least, in iTunes. And you can subscribe to the show using an RSS reader or in iTunes. You can follow it on Twitter at jazzsesh, S-E-S-H, because I'm cool like that. There's a Facebook fan page. It's a little obscene, actually, how many online versions of the Jazz Session there are. But you can find links to you know follow as many of them as your masochism demands at thejazzsession.com. This is show number 282. That means there are 18 shows left, if my math is right, until number 300, which will be either the final show or the glorious celebration of the successful completion of my 100 by 300 membership campaign, 100 members by the 300th show. You can become a member at thejazzsession.com slash join. It's cheap, it's easy, it smells good, all those things, and uh, it will make you, I think it'll make you feel like a fully realized human being. How's that for a promise I can in no way deliver on? If you become a member of the Jazz Session, you will suddenly feel like a fully realized human being. That's just one of the services I offer, along with the witty banter that you've come to to love at the beginning of these shows. Anyway, go to thejazzsession.com slash join and become a member. You can also make a one-time donation, which doesn't count toward my membership goals, uh, but it is a great way to support the show if you'd like to do that. I guess if your one-time donation was like $100,000, it would count. If you go to, I'll guarantee you right now, if you go to thejazzsession.com and you kick in a hundred grand using the one-time donation button, this show will have a number 301. You can be damn sure. It'll probably have a 3,001, actually, if you, uh, if you kick in a hundred thousand dollars. But at least a 301. I, I promise you, your hundred thousand dollars will buy one additional episode past the August 11th deadline. Okay? I think that's a pretty fair deal. That's like an hour and ten minutes of content for a hundred thousand dollars. You can't buy that on television, that's for sure. So, go do that if you would, and in the meantime, or, you know, actually you could pause this and go do it right now if you wanted, and come back, I'll wait. You're back? Great, thanks. Uh, So today's show is Lucas Ligeti. He is a drummer and a composer and a world traveler and just a fascinating guy who uh, you know comes from a musical heritage if the name Ligeti sounds familiar to you that's not a coincidence and i mean i don't mean it's not a coincidence that it sounds familiar to you that may in fact be a coincidence but his last name being Ligeti and it being from a musical heritage is not a coincidence are we all well, i think we're yes we're clear on that now that's great he has a, a new record which is actually a recording of a, an old band but uh it's, it sounds as fresh and uh, exploratory as everything he does. The record is called Pattern Time. It's on Innova. And uh, let's hear a track from that right now, and then we'll hear from Lucas. Thank you. 
my guest today is composer and uh, drummer percussionist Lucas Ligeti, and it's uh, a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You, as we were talking about uh, before we went on the air, spend a lot of your time traveling around the world uh, making music, and that seems like a, a fairly wonderful way to live and a way that exposes you to uh, an incredibly diverse array of, of musics. Uh, can you talk about when you, when you began doing that, particularly when you began traveling to Africa? Well, first of all, I have to say it uh, probably sounds a lot more glamorous than it is. Uh, I, I, Fair enough. I wish I were just touring, you know, playing from one concert to the other. That often doesn't happen. There's often a lot of idle time on the way. Uh, it happens that I was born and grew up in Vienna, in Austria. And so, for example, when I'm in Europe and uh, I don't have any gigs for a week or something, um, where a lot of musicians from New York would just come back home, I can hang with my mother in Vienna, and, and that's very practical, and it saves some money and things like that. So my travels are not always as glamorous as that. <laughs> uh, but I, it's true that I do very much enjoy traveling, and Africa has been a special kind of area of interest of mine for a long time. I actually, uh, well, I started in music very late. I was 18 before I started playing and, and really started the drums in my early 20s. And I uh, started listening to African music very early on in my days as a musician. So, you know, some people say, oh, I come from a classical background or I come from a jazz background or, or this or that. I can't really say that. In my case, I come from a, a very undefined background and African music is almost part of my background because I started getting into it at such an early point. So, And why that is, is that? How, how did that happen? Well, that's an interesting question and uh, I can't give you a straightforward answer. Uh, my grandmother collected African art for some reason that nobody quite knows. So I saw uh, African art, uh, like sculpture and things like that, when I was a, a, a little kid and I immediately somehow connected with it. And then I always liked looking at maps of faraway places and Africa certainly was among those. And then when I started making music, uh, I also had, then at, at that time when I was like around 20, I had a girlfriend who had grown up in Malawi. And then also, and this is perhaps, those two reasons are perhaps more important. First off, my father, who um, was a really great composer, uh, got very interested in African music around the time that I started making music, and we would swap cassettes. <laughs> and then I went to the classes of... Uh, a, a very fantastic ethnomusicologist, Gerhard Kubik, at the University of Vienna. So uh, I heard a lot about African music uh, in those lectures and started reading his writings and then reading more ethnomusicological writings and really got into using African approaches to making music, like African music theory, as an important ingredient to my own really early compositions as I was starting to find a voice and then came up with this uh, way of playing the drums based on some of those approaches. So that's something that's been with me from very early days. And then a couple of years later, in 1994, I actually got a chance to go to Africa the first time, which was through the Goethe Institute. The Goethe Institute's the German cultural um, centers around the world. I'm not German, so it was... Uh, very surprising to me to, to be um, contacted by the Goethe Institute. Actually, when they first called me, I, I hung up the phone on them because I thought someone was playing a joke on me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
But uh, it was really them, and they were sending me to the Ivory Coast. So I got to go to the Ivory Coast, and there I connected with local musicians and started a band. And that band, which was a really totally wildly experimental band, lasted for about five years, and we did a lot of touring in Europe and, and put out a CD on the Intuition record label, which is still around. And... Um, I then kind of went from there, and uh, you know, friendships uh, from that time in the Ivory Coast then led to other friendships and other projects, and I started doing other projects in other parts of Africa. So I've been going uh, to uh, the African continent on a pretty regular basis now for the past 17 years. How easy was it for you to gain acceptance from musicians in the countries that you visited? Very, very easy. I had a fantastic stroke of luck maybe uh, my first time in the Ivory Coast because the director of the Goethe Institute there at the time who had organized my visit uh, had been there for a couple of years, was a, a, a fan of Africa, had lived in other African countries before, and had gotten really knowledgeable about the music scene in Abidjan, the, the, the major city in uh, Côte d'Ivoire, a, a place that unfortunately has been on the news quite a lot lately um, due to some political problems. It's really, it was really a fantastic place, very open-minded, very cosmopolitan, uh, very diverse and, and, and interesting. And I haven't been there in a while but I'm sure it still is, and I just hope that uh, you know things will calm down. Um, hardly ever more than about three days go by without my talking to somebody there in Cote d'Ivoire. So I've been pretty much um, uh, informed about all stages of this uh, polit political uh, trouble that's been going on now for the past um, 11, 12 years. But um, anyway, yeah, I met a bunch of really fantastic musicians, and... Actually, my, the first day of my workshop there, about 150 musicians showed up. So I thought, gee, I can't work with 150 people. How am I going to do that? So I decided to play them some of my music, and I deliberately chose the most inaccessible, difficult, <laughs> unlistenable music of mine that I could possibly play. And that really worked, because the next day, 15 people showed up. But those 15 people... <laughs> <laughs> Those 15 people became close friends and totally accepted me and I immediately felt like I was like you know part of a family a family that really came together through that workshop because a lot of the people in that workshop then a, a lot of those 15 people had never met each other also previously and part of the the time that we had the, the first couple of days were spent actually more than with me working with them it was a matter of them kind of figuring out, even though they lived in the same city, figuring out how to play together because they came from various different regions of uh, of West Africa. 
And yeah, it, 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 I have to say that to a to you know to, to varying degrees, that experience has then replicated itself in other parts of Africa too. People have been extremely friendly, extremely open, and um, it's always been a pleasure working on that continent. It's um, it's always been a fantastic experience wherever I've gone. Of course, the results have been variously successful because of different circumstances and different combinations of musicians and, and, and so on and so forth. But um, it's been a fantastically interesting and educational and refreshing experience wherever I've gone. One of the the facets of your writing that's fascinating to me is that you're you are able to incorporate uh, elements of these traditions and cultures, and yet not make records uh, in many cases that sound like what we think of when we think of Western people going to Africa and and making records. They don't sound like uh, bits of cultural tourism or voyeurism. They sound still like your own writing. And you mentioned that the band that you first had in Cote d'Ivoire was uh, wildly experimental. And so here comes the question now after this long exposition, which is that I don't know anything about the experimental music scene in Africa. And my guess is that many people listening to the show don't either or don't even equate Africa with having one. So it seems like that's an area you've been able to to mine or to explore in a way that, that a lot of other people haven't, at least that I'm familiar with. Well, it's true that there isn't really uh, an experimental music scene or a tradition, I would say, in Africa as such. Of course, it depends on what you define as experimental. I think that music over there fulfills a lot of functions, um, but this kind of isolated music for music's sake often isn't one of them. Uh, still, there's a lot of experimentation in Africa with adapting traditions, um, there's a lot of uh, use of electronics, there's a lot of hip-hop, for example, but it's usually you know, for some kind of pop music purpose or some more defined purpose rather than just simple experimentation. Um, I've been spending quite a lot of time in South Africa recently, and that is a, con a country with a very um, large and very active experimental arts scene, more so in the visual arts than in music. But it definitely, there is definitely also stuff, uh, you know, quite a bit of stuff going on in music. But uh, one thing that I enjoy about Africa is that there's not such a segregation between different artistic disciplines. So uh, it's, it's quite easy and quite nice to interface with visual artists and especially with dancers, because in most African languages, um, there are actually no separate words for dancing or playing music. It's, it's considered to be the same thing. And I kind of consider dance, dancing and making music kind of um, 
just a reversal of cause and effect. I mean, in music, you're actually dancing on the instrument. You're moving, and the movement produces sound. And that's always how I think of my playing. And uh, in uh, uh, the dancers hear music, and that triggers movement. So um, I, I, I consider myself very lucky to be one of uh, a, a very small handful of experimental musicians who maintain regular connections with uh, with the, the African continent, with, with traditional musicians over there. I think there's an incredible lot to be done for experimental musicians there and experimental artists. And uh, as I said, people are very open. It's just not something that necessarily is so supported by the society at large there. But that doesn't mean that it's not a wor worthwhile thing to do, as we, as we in America know very well. I mean, uh, you couldn't exactly say that experimental music has a huge support in society uh, in America, and yet it's something important to do also for social reasons. It's a, it's, a, it's a really interesting line of work. I t my approach has always been to try to do something that requires musicians of these selected backgrounds to do. So I, I try to um, do like non-superficial cultural exchange or intercultural collaboration. Uh, so I make it as difficult for myself and for my colleagues involved. We really try to, you know, we talk a lot, we listen to a lot of music, we... Um, we try to figure out what to do different things, music itself and, and, and different things within music and different musical practices mean to us. What can we do together that we wouldn't be able to do without each other? Um, so I think those are the questions that then lead to, um, you know, to, to original results. Um, sometimes it's a fairly musicological inquiry. Sometimes it's a more sociological inquiry. Sometimes it's more a matter of just playing and, and, um, and communicating through that. It really depends on very much who I am working with. Um, another thing is that I don't see people as representatives of a certain culture. I see people first and foremost as individuals, and I think that every individual has a different understanding of culture, and I don't think it's so much a question of your culture, my culture. I don't think there is actually such a thing as ownership of culture. I don't think there's an entitlement for that. I think that, you know, somebody from the middle of Congo has every right in the world to become the greatest ex uh, expert on, uh, say, uh, you know, medieval Italian poetry and uh, can become a much greater expert on that than anyone from Italy if they set their mind to it because it's just a question of how much work and how much love and how much understanding do you put into it and there's no reason for somebody who comes from outside Africa not to learn very much about African 
um, music in certain cultures there and become knowledgeable on that. And so I am not a musicologist and I haven't zeroed in on any particular, you know, narrowly defined cultural area or something. For me, it's just more uh, an interest in how do musicians go about making music? How, what are they thinking about? Uh, how do they conceive of rhythm and of melody and, uh, and, and of form? And how do they conceive of sound and of, um, uh, of what their music means to them and to other people, but not necessarily as subscribers to one certain cultural cliché. So I think that, you know, that approach maybe has helped me um, be um, open-minded and has helped kind of lead us to doing some, you know, finding maybe some new uh, territory musically. Uh, also being very careful not to replicate existing clichés. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, yeah. try, you know, try. I mean, it's always, it's always trying. You said a few moments ago that you try, uh, you and your collaborators try to make it as difficult for yourselves as possible. Can you expound yeah. on that a little, <laughs> what you mean by that? Well, you know, I mean, jazz, for example, uh, and I'm the greatest fan of jazz, and it's, some, it's a type of music that I'm, like, I, 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 I couldn't have more respect for, and it's kind of a lifelong quest for me to become a better jazz musician. Uh, I don't know if I'm a jazz musician or not. I'd rather not define myself like that again. I think that's narrow, and um, I think jazz is a fantastic language, and I I like to be proficient in it. I'm never as proficient in it as I would like to be. I'm always trying to become more proficient in it, but I, I try to use it more to interface with other languages than to stay within itself. But, um, of course, jazz is based in many ways on African approaches to music making. And that's something that I was able to see, particularly in West Africa, in a very strong way, like seeing some of the, you know, original ingredients of jazz being played in a, in a living way there in situ. That was a, an it is continues to be an extremely important experience for me. But um, so using some kind of like, let's say, um, fairly schematic approach to the jazz language, it's possible pretty easily with musicians around the world, wherever you go, to jam and to have a kind of a least common denominator jam session and feel very good about yourself. Sure. So, I, you know, I try to avoid that approach. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to ask you, and, and maybe I can use as the, as, as the springboard for asking this question, this album, which has just been released on Innova called Pattern Time, uh, which actually represents a uh, an er much earlier aggregation of musicians, uh, but one of the things that leaps right out of this record for me is is your approach to uh, to rhythm, in particular to to polyrhythmic exploration. And so, could you talk a little bit about that, about your interest in exploring the ways rhythms can be layered and and combined? Oh wow, huge subject. Yeah, I know that's course, a pretty broad question. Yeah, and of course, a a, a fundamental subject to both jazz and African music. And it's very interesting, you know, because, um, well, I'll, I'll, maybe I'll talk about that later. I, I want to say something about swing and African music. But it's really strange that the first African music that I was actually exposed to was traditional court music from the kingdom of Buganda, which is in Uganda. It's uh, very, very little known music internationally. And 
the reason I heard this music, and more even than, than hearing it read about it, and came to understand kind of the theoretical background of, of how it's conceived, especially rhythmically, metrically, is because the aforementioned musicologist Gerhard Kubik did some really groundbreaking research there in, um, in Uganda back in the late 1950s. And uh, this music tradition um, was then more or less extinct because due to political problems in Uganda, um, a lot of the practitioners of this kind of music, a lot of the, the traditional court musicians uh, at the court of the king of Buganda were killed by Milton Obote, then Idi Amin, but uh, mainly even before Idi Amin came along. And it's only in the past uh, 20 years or so since the situation in Uganda has improved again that um, young musicians are trying to revive these traditions. And I've actually had the good fortune to be able to go to Uganda twice over the past three years or so and meet some of those musicians. But before that, my knowledge of this traditional music from Buganda was really more a theoretical one. And uh, now I've been able to work with some of these musicians. But they have a very, very unusual and interesting approach to rhythm, which is they have these extremely fast interlocking melodies uh, played in, a, in like straight, let's say, let's call it straight eighth notes to use Western terminology. So one musician will start playing straight eighth notes, a melody, and then a second musician playing on the same xylophone will play another melody in straight eighths exactly in between the notes of the first. And that happens at an incredibly high speed. So the big question is, how does the second musician do that? How, how is this person able to interlock those notes at such a, a, a fast tempo? Because if you syncopate that quickly, you just kind of slow down and you start getting into a phasing effect. And, you know, if they were playing Steve Reich, that would be, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that would be desired, but that's not part of that tradition. So the, the actual answer to that question is that the second person uh, makes believe that they are playing on the beat. So the, both musicians are playing on the same instrument. They're playing in total coordination. They're playing at the same speed. They're both keeping the same time, but they don't agree as to where the beat is. And that idea that you can actually have different opinions on the beat within an ensemble, which is something that I heard about, you know, just as I was starting to compose, um, it just totally blew my mind and just co completely changed my approach to how to how to look at music. So, ever since that time, I've been interested in working with that idea that, that music can have multiple beats at the same time. So, of course, that got me both into more conventional explorations of polymetrics and polyrhythmics that happen in jazz uh, and in African music a lot, but it also got me into the idea of polytempo structures, of having like maybe up to, I've composed a piece for 11 musicians where everyone plays in a different tempo, but they're all coordinated by a computer, they're all listening to click tracks. And then also many, many experiments with interlocking structures, with imp improvising based on interlocking structures, improvising based on multiple beats, also through composed pieces based on these kinds of principles. And that gets you in a whole kind of exploration of, you know, psychoacoustic possibilities. What does the brain of the listener actually do when they hear this kind of a thing? When uh, you hear two people 
interlocking melodies on the same xylophone, the same keys of the xylophone, at rates of like, you know, 400 beats a minute or something like that, your brain can no longer differentiate between who is playing what melodic line. And what you get is you get your, your brain starts reprocessing the information and reordering it into, for example, frequency bands. So then you get a result of the two musicians playing what they're playing in the, the highest notes, the, the middle notes, the low notes. These kinds of psychoacoustic effects is something that I, uh, you know, I've been exploring a lot, both in my compositions and my improvisations. Is that kind of the uh, the oral equivalent of spinning a wheel with two different colors on it so that they combine and your eyes see just one color? Exactly, you got it. That's that's part of what it is, and I've been thinking of you know spinning wheels for many years. Now. <laughs> I'm sure, <laughs> and and also of sculpture. Just you know, for it, music then kind of becomes a three dimensional object, and you you can kind of walk around the sculpture and look at it from different ways because there is no correct beat to listen to you can for example you know hone in on different aspects of the music and you'll hear different beats emerge and they're all legitimate ways of listening to the music or dancing to the music what was the was the function of this court music in buganda that you're speaking of was it for dancing it uh it, there were then drums being played and there was dancing and usually with with most african music if you don't know where the beat is like you're listening to it you can't figure out where's the one if you look at the dancer's feet um, then that's a pretty sure way of finding out but in this case it's actually not true and um, I asked musicians in Uganda well how do the drums relate to the beat like what about the beat that the drums are playing relative to what the xylophones are playing and the musicians just told me listen to the xylophones the drums can do anything they want <laughs> <laughs> So um, it's really interesting. It's not without precedent. There's, there are other styles of music in Central and Eastern Africa that, that use similar principles. And there is a lot of analogous um, of an approach in visual arts, in, in textile design, in, in painting. You can often see patterns, especially in Central and East African music, that interlock, uh, 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 visual art that interlock in interesting ways. So... Let, I'm just going to break in on you again to say you mentioned before creating a, a piece in which there were 11 musicians each playing at a different tempo uh, right. synchronized by a computer. And in the case of th in the case of that particular piece, did you have in mind a goal for what the audience's perception of that music would be? I'm not sure even if goal is the right word, but a multiplicity of perceptions, an array of possible perceptions depending on what you want to listen to, 
where you're sitting relative to, to the instruments. Like, for example, if you're sitting next to the trombone, which tends to be a loud instrument or something, or the trumpet, then you'll probably you know, use that as your anchor. It really depends on position. It depends on how you're listening to it. It depends on what you want to hear. But of course, that piece is a lot more complicated than that because there are parts with a clearly defined beat. There's parts with 11 different meters or tempos happening at the same time. There's also parts where musicians are interlocking at a very fast pace, but not two musicians, but 11 musicians. So like an 11-fold interlocking, probably the fastest Klangfarb melody ever <laughs> composed. You couldn't do it with a conductor, but you can do it with a computer. So um, I use these kinds of click track setups also a lot in improvisations. And then it doesn't have to be click tracks. It's just information coming via headphones. And the musicians who are playing it are privy to information that the audience isn't privy to. And that doesn't necessarily have to be rhythmic improvisations. It can be changes or something. And like we're all playing to different changes at the same time. But the audience doesn't know, like, how are we harmonically coordinated? And you get these really strange effects because essentially then you're, you're hearing things built on certain harmonies without hearing the comping, so to say, to talk in a jazz sure. vocabulary. So, uh, and then, of course, uh, well, I wanted to say one more thing about the Ugandan thing, which is that this historically this music, which was being played on xylophones for a couple hundred years, actually before that, originated on harps. And when there were harps playing this music, it was a solo music, and the musician would play with both hands on the harp, and the two melodies, the interlocking melodies, would be played by the two hands. And then that was kind of transposed to the xylophones. And along with playing on uh, these um, the, this harp, the musician would sing. And actually there was a, a melodic line based on lyrics of traditional poetry that was kind of synchronous with these melodies. So then when it moved over to the xylophones, this music became an instrumental music, but the old lyrics were still embedded in the melodies and the musicians still heard those melodies and, and, and sang those lyrics in their heads to, um, you know, to remember the melodies that they're playing. So uh, rather than having like music notation, there was just the, 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 uh, those lyrics in their head. And since uh, Luganda is a language with tonal inflections, both the rhythm of the lyrics and the melody of the lyrics gave them clues as to what to play on the instrument. So, uh, I, you know, it's, it's a very, very deep tradition, and I'm, I haven't even scratched the surface yet. I'm sure. So I then decided, and I just started playing drums, I decided, how about doing on the drum set what a harp player used to do? So I started playing these complicated polymetric patterns on the drums. It's something that I, I continue doing to this day, where I basically play melodies, so to say. I don't really believe in this concept of melodic drumming, because if you play a piece in, like, I don't know, E, and your tom-toms are tuned to an E-flat, nobody's going to notice. I don't know, somebody said that. I think it was maybe... I don't know, it was some drummer in an interview who said it like that. I think that's a good way to explain why drums are not really a melodic instrument. But of course, the drums have different pitches, so you can go higher, lower, you can imitate melodies, as some drummers like Max Roach, for example, did so beautifully. And uh, I, When I say melodies now, I think of it differently. I think of it more, again, as a timbral melody, like, let's say, cymbal, drum, 
another drum or something like that. And then I juxtapose different melodies in different hands or, you know, feet that are, that are um, interlocking. And I come up very quickly with these complicated uh, polymetric cycles. And I've used that quite a lot in my, in my drumming. And on the CD pattern time, I, in a very free way, I used this kind of approach. I don't know of any other drummer using this kind of approach. The only drummer I know of who uses an approach that sometimes sounds a little similar, although I think his, um, his um, uh, you know, conceptual approach is very different, is a very little-known drummer, living American but living in England these days. Uh, his name is Pete Zeldman, and I think he is the most revolutionary drummer of the past 20 years. He's completely overlooked, so I really want to, you know, put a shout-out in for, for Pete Zeldman. I think he's the biggest drum set innovator that I've seen over the past 20 years. A genius, really, and no one knows. I, I certainly have never heard of Check him out. I will. Thank you. You uh, you mentioned earlier wanting to say something about uh, swing and African music. I, I still want to add that Pete Zeldman, he does what he does mainly in a solo context. I do what I do mainly in a band context. Mm. And my what I do is, is way less evolved technically than what Pete does. Uh, he plays this setup with a crazy amount of pedals. I just play a pretty, you know, pretty standard drum set at this point. Sure. Um, but... And it's something that I really want to develop more. Over, it's something that I've, I've been working on for a long time, but the outlets for it have not been many because in most bands, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to use such an unconventional approach to drumming. Most, most people, um, you know, expect a certain thing from the drums, and um, yeah, drumming is a, a pretty conservative area, and that's always been a struggle for me. <laughs> <laughs> Did you want to add the uh, comment about the swing and African music? Thing? Oh my God! Yeah, that's a that's a, a, a an interesting one. Yeah, I think that uh, swing in jazz is something that's kind of shrouded in mystery in many ways. And I'm talking about swing, not the the style of jazz, but the the, the rhythm. Like, does it swing? And I've found that there's nothing mysterious at all about swing, really. But that it's really the the but it's a very unique approach to rhythm in its own right. Very very different approach again. Which is that if you have like, you're always wondering as a drummer, you know, you have this ding, ding, a ding, ding, a ding rhythm. And where's the uh? Where's that little note? Is it a triplet or, or what is it? And most people just will say, oh, gee, you know, if you, you know, you got the swing or you ain't or something. Um, but um, frankly, I think that it's not as mysterious as that, but that the... the the thing that makes it so inexplicable, where exactly is this note that's in part responsible for the swing feeling located? Well, in, to a certain degree, it's up to a, a, an individual musician's sense of phrasing. But there's another aspect to it, which is that it's variable depending on tempo. Because oftentimes, for example, you'll have a like a, a ballad, and you'll play this note almost already at the next beat. It like it becomes like a 32nd or a 64th note or something. If you have a really fast up-tempo um, piece, then you have the ding, ding, a ding, ding, it becomes ding, a ding, ding, a ding, ding, a ding, it becomes eighth notes. So actually this note moves st steadily from 
coming very late to coming like halfway between the two beats. Sure. And I think that in part explains the mystery of it, that, of course, in order to know where this is placed, you first have to know what the tempo is. And I think thinking of it that way kind of demystifies it. And, um, you know, a little mystery is nice, but it's also nice to be able to demystify it. So for me, the question was because so much of the rhythmic approach of jazz is rooted in African music. For me, the question was, does this phenomenon have a precedent in any African music traditions. And I'm not a musicologist, so I didn't make a systematic, you know, any, I didn't conduct any systematic research on this or anything, but I have not been able to find personally this phenomenon in African music. African music swings in a certain way because there's a lot of syncopation going on, but it's a different sense of swing than what you find in this unique music called jazz, which is an American concoction made of the, the meeting sometimes in not very fortunate ways of people bringing with them African traditions and European traditions. But it's definitely an American thing that has come through this, you know, strange cultural circumstance that, that we've had on this continent. But um, playing jazz in Africa is a very different experience. And I have not been able to find personally any African music tradition that includes this um, rhythm-changing kind of linear, linearly as a function of tempo. Um, there is a German musicologist called Rainer Pollack who has conducted research in uh, Bamako, the capital city of Mali, working with urban djembe players. And he says that in that context, this phenomenon exists, and he thinks that it comes from djembe playing, which is quite plausible because there was a lot of djembe playing in Africa for centuries, to be sure, uh, before people were exported as slaves. Now, he had, uh, he's been working with urban djembe players, um, Bamako is very far inland. Most of the people who were exported to America probably came from more coastal regions, but the djembe is an instrument that's uh, very, very strong in Guinea, uh, and definitely that's a region where a lot of people were taken away from. Um, I don't know. Uh, there's probably something to it, but... I've never actually, I've actually not been to Bamako very, uh, you know, unfortunately I have to say it's definitely a place I want to go because it's a, the Malian music scene is absolutely fantastic. So I don't know, but I wanted to mention that. But um, I think playing jazz in, in Africa is very, it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting thing because jazz is an American music. It's based on a lot of African music elements that migrated to America then migrated back to Africa. Like also rumba. I mean, rumba started in the Caribbean based on African models, then was re-imported to Africa in the first half of the 20th century, and then led to a craze of rumba in countries like Congo that then led to music styles like sukus and, and these kinds of things that flooded all of Africa. So the, it's always a back and forth. And... 
most African musicians who play jazz, though, have a, a definite tendency not to use that that swing phenomenon, but play more kind of funky jazz. And I've played. There's certain jazz standards that are very popular in Africa. For example, Take Five is really popular. So, if you're like playing at a jam session somewhere in Africa, Take Five will inevitably come up, <laughs> but it won't necessarily be in five. I've played five, Take Five in six, or in four. <laughs> Many times. <laughs> I've also played 12-bar blues many times, except that the 12-bar blues was a cheerful 11 or 13 bars. <laughs> because in African music traditions, patterns are very important, but not bars. So cyclic repetition happens, but there's not the sense necessarily that it has to be 12 bars. Counting bars, which is an, a very important thing in jazz. I mean, playing jazz in America... I mean, I don't think any jazz musician really counts bars. I certainly don't. But, I mean, I I know when the form is over by listening to the changes, but also by having some kind of a, a sense of symmetry that kind of comes from, you know, from doing this. And I kind of know, you know, when the 32 bars are over, just it kind of, I kind of unconsciously subdivide it into parts. And it's like coming, you know, I feel that if I play 31 or 33 bars, there's a kind of a, a wrong... Like everything kind of seems tilted. There's a there's a sure. something seems asymmetrical, but that's something that'll happen often, like a thirteen bar blues and and things like that, in jam sessions in Africa. So it, you kind of have to divorce yourself from that feeling of symmetry and think of of patterns and cycles only. Blues players who play guitar and sing unaccompanied in the South, for example, often have, there's no relation to, to bars. It's just where it feels like the changes should go. Absolutely. And then uh, you can go further and go to, for example, Korean music, which sounds very bluesy sometimes, but has a completely different sense of, of rhythm and meter, which is often very free and very connected to breath. And, and so here's a phrase and now i'm kind of exhaling and my one is now right <laughs> <laughs> and i've actually made experiments trying to imitate korean music with african traditional musicians and though those you know there are some of the wild experiments we made with that group called beta Foli in, in the ivory coast is it challenging for you to find people who can play your music well, when I went to Africa, I, I kind of went with the attitude that people there don't usually read, read music. It's more learning by road tradition. So I can't just expect to write something and then expect people to read it. Um, I have to say that I myself am not a great reader because I, uh, in most 
contexts where I play, I don't have to read, so it's something that I have very little practice doing. Um, even though I'm a classically trained composer, I'm as a player, I'm more of an improviser, and so, um, you know, I, I, I rarely, um, I rarely have to read. But I also couldn't play their music, of course, because I wasn't familiar with those traditions. So that was actually how I arrived at that approach: that let's do something else. And so I am, you know, when I start working with musicians, I I, I try to have few preconceptions, not only in Africa, I try to have few preconceptions and try to get to know these musicians and then write or conceive something that's made to fit the musical characters and also the backgrounds of those musicians. But, I mean, so I try to adapt to that. But I like the adaptation to be mutual. I like them to try to adapt to my approach, too. So, you know, I always like that collaborative aspect. I guess what prompted me to ask that question was that I'm always curious about how much of any particular artist's underlying musical theories need to be understood or even uh, known to the people with whom they collaborate. I don't know. I think it varies very much from artist to artist, and there's also the question is of what is need. It also depends on what, what are you working on, what are your... Um, um, you know what are your ambitions and your your objectives in the collaboration? Um, do you want to do something that's rooted more in a theoretical understanding? Do you want to just do something that's rooted more in, in just spontaneous listening? Uh, are you dealing with somebody with whom you have a you know a shared tradition and therefore a shared language? Um, you know, oftentimes among free improvisers or among uh, jazz musicians, for example, not much has to be talked about. You can just play and listen um, sometimes it's it's important to talk a lot I think it really depends can you talk a, a little bit about what uh, I guess how how you ensure that you remain present in the moment when there's often so much to deal with uh, theoretically so to speak in the music that you play I try to make it uncomfortable for myself mm. <laughs> Um, sometimes I'll move around components of the drum set while I'm playing. Just, you know, w w I'll play with one hand and I'll move something around with another hand just so I don't know, you know, what sounds are where anymore. Sure. Um, I don't know. Um, I just try to listen. You know, it's as simple and as complex as that, I think. And I don't think too much about the theory when I'm playing. I try to just go with the flow of the music. I think that's maybe a pretty cliche jazz answer, but, <laughs> but I think it's true. Yeah. You know, a lot of the, th I, I think improvising, you know, a lot of people who don't know anything, who haven't, you know, thought much about improvising, think that improvising is somehow random. Improvising isn't random at all. It's quickly made decisions, but of course you're drawing on a lifetime's worth of experiences, of building your own vocabulary on the instrument, of, um, you know, of, of, of preconceptions that then inform those quickly made decisions. So it's not a random thing at all. Uh, finally, uh, I'll ask, is there something not directly connected to your work that you've read or seen or listened to recently that you'd like to recommend to other people? Um, so much. I don't know where to Anything start. Um, 
maybe something from, well, I already said Pete Zeldman, maybe something from outside of music. Sure. Uh, well, I mentioned that I'm hanging in South Africa quite a bit. I think there are some extremely interesting um, visual and uh, intermedia arts being done there. And since we've talked so much about Africa, um, there's a lot of interesting visual and in intermedia arts being done in Africa or in the African diaspora. Um, somebody like William Kentridge needs probably no introduction, but I guess not everyone's aware of him. Fantastic um, draftsman and multimedia artist from South Africa, who I really recommend you check out. He's had a lot of a lot of shows in New York. Um, there's also interesting, um, very multidisciplinary uh, approaches to uh, media art that also sometimes interface with music. I did a, a gig uh, just uh, about a month ago in Johannesburg with an artist called Markus Neustädter. Um, that's also a really interesting artist to check out who hasn't really come to America a lot. He's South African. Um, there's um, really interesting African painting that has been done by Africans living in the U.S. A great painter, for example, um, from um, Ethiopia, Skunda Bogosian, Ethiopian of Armenian uh, extraction, who d uh, is no longer alive, but painted for many years in Atlanta and Washington, D.C., uh, who you could, really should check out, really fantastic work. There's an Ivorian painter called Watara, very interesting painter, has the same last name as the current president, um, who was based in New York. I'm not really sure where he was right now. There's just a lot there, and it's really interesting to see the analogies also between contemporary African art and music. And uh, so maybe that's that's a, 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 an interesting thing that I can recommend. Um, in music, um, well, since th I have this new CD out, Pattern Time, the, the individual uh, work of some of the musicians that are on there, it's a fantastic band. For example, Benoit Delbecq has a lot of solo albums out on the Songlines label. Uh, Gianni Jebbia has a bunch of CDs out. Uh, Ali Keita has a CD out of his music on Contrejour, a Belgian label. Uh, Michael Manring also needs no introduction, a, you know, a god of bass players. <laughs> um, it's a fantastic band, and, and I think we were able to explore some of the questions of, you know, mixing African music and free improvisation and jazz in some pretty unconventional ways. And that's something that I, that I intend to continue doing. So each one of these musicians I, I can't recommend strongly enough, and they're all musicians who here in... America are either not that well-known or not that well-known as experimental and improvising musicians. Michael Mannering is known for his work with Michael Hedges, um, very melodic, very beautiful, and extremely grooving bass playing, but not exploring maybe the, the outer limits of, of communication and sound and things like that as much as he did on this album, Pattern Time. So... Um, and Benoit Delbecq is somebody who's, you know, very known in France, but not so much, not so present here in, in, in the U.S. So I really encourage you to check those people out. That's great. My guest is Lucas Ligeti, and it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you. Great to be here.
That's music from Lucas Ligeti from his new CD, Pattern Time, on Innova Records. I'm Jason Crane. This is the Jazz Session, presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. That's it, kids. Go to the jazzsession.com slash join and become a member. Uh, I think I've now recorded the intros to two shows back-to-back, and I think in both of them I forgot to thank everybody at the beginning. I don't even drink. Uh, perhaps I should start. Anyway, thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. They're online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed the show's logo, and who is online at twitter.com slash Rabel V-R-A-B-E-L. Thank you for listening. And now get out there, if you would, and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can. And then uh, come back next time for another of the rapidly diminishing number of conversations remaining about jazz here on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.